Good morning, everyone. Exodus uh, chapter 7, verse 14, and until chapter 8, verse 19. If you don't bring Bible, or if you wish to have a hard copy, that's uh, at the back. So Exodus chapter 7, verse, four, uh, verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile, and take in your hand the stuff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams and canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace, did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. The Plague of Frogs Seven days passes after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. But the magician did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, 
I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your official and your people, they will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. The Plague of Nets Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust off the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become nuts. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust off the ground, nets came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became nets. But when the magician tried to produce nets by their secret arts, they could not. Since the nets were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. How about I pray before we get into it? Um, Lord, I just pray that we might have hearts ready to be changed and ears ready to listen to you. And I pray, Lord, that um, yeah, we might um, be ready to learn from your word today. Amen. All right. Um, <clears throat> the Sator Square. Hopefully, seeing up on the screen. Thank you. Um, Sator Square is a special square found all over the Mediterranean area. It's actually a square written in Latin. Right. Um, earliest examples date back to the days of Pompeii. Um, this square was actually the inspiration for the latest movie Tenant from Christopher Nolan, right? And you might actually see some of the similarities between the square and the movie. Let me explain a little bit of what the square actually says. The word sator simply means sower. Arepo is possibly a name, but scholars are actually unsure of what this word means. Tenant, which means master. Opera, which is the plural word for service. And rotas, the word, this word may actually mean rotating or to rotate. Now, the beautiful thing about this square is that the five words are written actually backwards, forwards, upwards, and downwards. Right? Each line has its own little independence, but it all works within itself as well, unifying itself. In fact, this reminds me of kind of like a visual representation of what a symphony is kind of like. Because in a symphony, you have an orchestra that's built up of clarinets and horns and violins and all sorts of different instruments, and they're all playing their own set of music, their own sheet music in front of them, but they're all playing together in unison so that what you're listening to is actually like harmonious sound together, right? 
Now, why I open today's passage like this is because the Sator Square, or even a symphony, with the overlaying layers of different sounds, is similar to the plague story that we're seeing here in Exodus. It's a kind of... And, and what we're going to be doing now is kind of tuning our ears to see some of those individual instruments and how they work within the entire whole. What I want to do is try and break down for you, show you some of those smaller parts and then also how they kind of fit together as a whole. Ultimately, what we're going to see is that God is both the God of mercy and justice and that he is making this known to both the people of Israel and to the Egyptians. Okay, but let's actually start by getting into the Bible now. Let's read now in first, we're going to back up a little bit from the um, 10 plagues story first. We're going to read first in Exodus 5. Exodus 5, 1 to 2 says, Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, these words were actually dis- were anticipated by God back in the story of the burning bush. But Pharaoh here is almost signing his own death warrant. He's kind of putting the nails in his own coffin because he's essentially saying, "I don't know this Lord." And the rest of the story is going to be him knowing the Lord, knowing what he's like. Do you know what? In fact, Tim started this series. He's named the series The God Who Delivers, Demands and Dwells, and that highlights the three major components of Exodus. But he was thinking of a title originally to go over the entire book, which was From Revelation to Relationship. And actually, this title for Exodus kind of actually fits really well because well, this is really the revelation of who God really is to his people. Actually, the word revelation actually means to uncover. And so what we're actually seeing here is the uncovering of who God is, and that's going to be what we're seeing in the plague story. It's going to be the uncovering to Pharaoh of who God really is. Now, I want to point out quickly as well, I will be referring to these plagues as strikes, mostly because the Bible refers to them as strikes throughout the passage as well. And you might have seen that in your Bible study groups this week. We're going to call them the ten strikes on Egypt, mostly because plague refers to disease. But strike highlights this thing of, well, Pharaoh's been striking the Egyptians for generations now with the whips as he keep them into slavery, but now it is Egypt's turn to be struck by God. Okay? And in fact, the irony of this story is intentional. There is lots of parts that are meant to be a reversal or an ironic twist to this story because we even see in Exodus 4.22 that then you say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Right? This statement is setting up and pitting against us God's firstborn son versus Egypt's firstborn son. And actually that passage that that alludes to the tenth and final plague, Tim has the pleasure of bringing that to you next week. This week, I have the pleasure of bringing to you the first nine strikes on Egypt. Okay, And actually it's with great pleasure I do get to bring them to you because I've been super excited about doing so. I've actually 
Uh, when Tim asked for takers on the Exodus series, I did this section first because I wanted to get in and explain some of the awesome things that's going on here. And I've been holding on to this since about February earlier this year when I learned these sort of things myself. It's definitely not something I discovered myself, but um, have been made aware of these things. And these are the things I want to bring to you today. So let's uncover together the God of the Bible through the 10 plague story. Okay, you'll see in your outlines that you've got actually on one of the pages a grid of nine boxes together and then a tenth box underneath. This is meant for you so that you can help arrange some of the nine or all of the nine um, strikes on Egypt and the tenth one being a culmination of the nine um, strikes. And why it's represented in this grid format is because Well, actually, you can represent all the nine strikes on Israel, both vertically and horizontally. There are patterns within this section of the Bible that link together, and you can draw them in this way. I've drawn them this way because it's helpful for us to see it, but the the scrolls originally of how it was written on, they probably would have used this just by the language that they've um, used picking up through the series of nine strikes, and that's kind of what I'm going to be highlighting to you today. The first thing you can do, though, is you can just simply write in all the nine or ten strikes on Egypt. So they are in order, starting from top left. The Nile turns to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, plague, boils, hail, locust, darkness, and the tenth is firstborn. If I went too fast, it's up on the screen for you anyway. Now, if you're artistically minded, and I know some of you are, and some of you really hate drawing, and I'm going to make you draw today, Um, is to actually represent some of these. We're going to join them together with some pictures, okay? I'll have some words on the screen as well, but um, pictures as well. Now, I mean, what I mean is there will be a theme that connects the first, the fourth, and the seventh strike, as well as the second, fifth, and eighth, and the third, sixth, and ninth strike, but then also the links will run horizontally as well. Now, this is the really cool pit, the really cool part that I was hoping to show you guys. So, let's start with the columns first. They're a little quicker to go through. And once we get through the columns, then we'll get to the rows. So, let's start with strike one, four, and seven. The linking phrase in these strikes is go to Pharaoh in the morning, right? Each one of these strikes starts with telling Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh in the morning. Now, this link is intentional for the author for a couple of reasons. Most importantly, that strike one, four, and seven start this new set of three. You can actually take the the nine strikes as three sets of three here, and the marking of each strike starting a new day is that in the morning phrase. It's very similar to how Genesis starts and finishes end each day of creation with that phrase, and there was evening and there was morning the whatever day. And that marks the next day that you're about to read from. This is the sort of same kind of um, trigger, triggering phrase going throughout. Because it's almost like the three sets of three, well, every time you read that and there was, uh, sorry, go to Pharaoh in the morning, well, it's like there's a new day of striking Egypt here. In fact, there's actually going to be quite a few links between these nine plagues or the nine strikes and the creation narrative. Because many of the strikes are actually going to be a straight reversal of creation. Here God is destroying. It's kind of the anti-creation. As Robert Outler points out in his book, this is kind of how authors are using 
using motifs but in a reversal type way they're picking up on the same language of creation to show how Egypt is now being decreated or destroyed and I'm going to do my best to point some of those out to you as we go okay the second column the second column is all to do with Pharaoh's house okay the phrase in this section that you're looking for is go into Pharaoh and say to him all right now, go into Pharaoh presupposes it means go into Pharaoh's house. Not literally go into his body, but go into his house, the place where he lives, right? And actually, this is kind of clearer for us in the frogs one, for example, in the English, because for the frogs, when they come, there's lots of description about Pharaoh's house and his how the frogs go into the house and onto the bed and into the bedrooms and in the ovens and the kneading bowls and essentially spreading out through the entire house, right? But go into Pharaoh is that linking comment. And just like I mentioned with the creation narrative linking up between creation and now the destruction of Egypt, well, also there's kind of a a bit of a fight between the houses of God versus the houses of Egypt here. This is one of those themes that is being played out through the entire Exodus story. We actually already saw it in Exodus 1 and 2 when Moses was put in the basket to save him from the Nile, but then taken and put into Pharaoh's house. The very house of the man who's trying to kill him is actually the one that saves him. But later on in the story as well, with the 10th plague, we're going to see that uh, the Israelites are asked to, to sacrifice the lamb and bring enough portions of fat for each household and bring the fat into the house and mark the doorways with the blood of the, on the house. So really there is a theme going out throughout Exodus here of Egypt's house versus Israel's house. And you'll see that later in the series as well when you see God building his own house. Now, the third column. This one is about, essentially there's no warning before each of these strikes. Okay, so on your grid here, we've got the third, sixth and ninth strike. They are linked together by the fact that there's no warning before this strike. Usually you get that phrase, let my people go or else dot 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 will happen. But in the third, sixth and ninth strike, you don't get that. You get no warning at all. It simply just happens. The gnats, the boils and the darkness simply come on the people. Okay, so how are you going so far? They've got the columns, got the, feel like you've got them under, under control. There's kind of layers to this thing that's going on here. I'm kind of trying to peel back the layers of the onion to try and help you to see um, all these different things. Now, I'm actually thinking as well of those who might be listening to the podcast right now, if you'd like to go and have a look on the Facebook page, the WEC Facebook page, I've asked him to put the graphic up on the Facebook page so that you can see what we're talking about at the same time. Okay, so now let's deal with the rows. The first set of these strikes all have to do with water and land. It's going to be actually a progression from water to land. Okay, again, there's creation type language here that's being played upon in this section. First, the Nile is turned to blood and the Egyptians can no longer drink the waters. This is the answer to Pharaoh throwing all the Israelite babies into the Nile. And so now it runs with the runs red with their blood. Right. This is the importance of that. But it's also kind of to go to at the heart of Egypt Uh, straight out of the gates with the first strike on Egypt because, well, the Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. We tend to think of Egypt with the borders that we see on the atlas nowadays and on our globes that we represent Egypt with, but 
To Egypt in those days, it was the whole civilization was built around the Nile, right? The Nile was their drinking water. The Nile was their farming water. That was where all their cities are. So to go for the Nile, first of all, is almost to go at the heart of who Egypt really is. Okay? Interesting as well, even Egyptians are worshipping the Nile. They're worshipping the Nile and, and, um, and having many water rituals to worship it. Interesting as well, this one actually lasts for seven days, unlike all the other strikes. This strike actually sets up the first of the three. It focuses on water first. But now we've seen the second strike with frogs. These are amphibians who live both on water and on land. And now they're coming out of the water onto the land. Actually, the word amphibia means to have two lives, right? It's these little creatures that are half land, half water type animals. And they're coming out of the, land, out of the water and onto the land. And actually so much so that by the end of the strike, the land is stinking with their dead bodies. Okay? And now we get the third strike. Here you see Aaron to stretch out his staff and he strikes the dust of the earth so that it might become gnats. Gnats are kind of like those little midges um, insects that we have in Australia. They, they fly around little light bulbs and then they're dead on the ground in the morning. Um, but... It actually is a category that includes flies, but as you'll see, the next strike is flies, so it probably doesn't include the flies for this one. But so the gnats, they come out of the dust of the earth and they cover man and beast. Now remember, anti-creation narrative stuff going on here because what it is, what was it that God created Adam from in the creation narrative? In Genesis 2, 7, it says... Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It's like the dust is coming alive and attacking the people now, covering the skin with this wriggling living dust. The very thing that man was created from is now covering man and destroying man and making it horrible for them again. And so now we see this progression from water to half water, half land creatures, and then to the land itself coming alive and destroying it and causing chaos. And rather than God creating land out of the chaos waters, creating order out of the chaos waters, well, now chaos is coming from the water and onto the land. And this is the reflection of the Genesis narrative, the Genesis creation story. Now, before I get to the second row, I want to just also point out one of the things that links these three plagues as a set is that Aaron is the one who does these things each time. It's Aaron who's called to stretch out his hand, or it says in the passage, say to Aaron to do thus, and then Aaron goes and does it. Okay? So now we get to the second one, the second row. Um, this is the strike of the flies, and again, it starts with in the morning. It's a new day of destruction on Egypt. We get in chapter eight twenty-two here, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where the, my people will dwell, so no swarms of flies shall, shall be there. And then the next strike of plague on the livestock is, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. 
This is also riffing off the type of phrasing and type of words that we're seeing in Genesis 1 because in the creation narrative there we see that God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good and then God separated the light from the darkness. And on the second day as well, you see God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And so just like the language on these days of creation is about separating, so too the same language of being used is in this, third, in this second set of strikes. The destruction is this type of reversal again. Okay, so also on the third strike in this set, the boils, it's actually less overt here with the separating because we actually see that the magicians particularly get a mention here They cannot stand before Pharaoh because they're essentially covered in the boils. And there's a bit of a distinction here going on between uh, Pharaoh's magicians and Moses and Aaron. And actually, let me just mention as well, I did spend a lot of time poring over the sixth strike because there's stuff going on here that uh, seems to be significant, but I can't actually put my finger on and I haven't found too many people, too many um, Bible commentaries that could uh, could explain some of it as well. But there is stuff going on in this section that that um, hopefully one day we can we can see I can see we we can all see together. But uh, moving on though, the second set here essentially is that separation, the distinction between these two between these two people, Israel and in Egypt. We see in the first two strikes, um, particularly that separation, and actually this time it's not Aaron who does it; it's actually God who does it. In this section, God is the one to do this set of of um, three strikes on Egypt. Okay, all right. So now we come to the third set of strikes. These strikes are all to do with seeing. Rise up early in the morning again, starting a new day on the destruction of Egypt, and we get the hail. In Exodus nine, we read in verse eighteen, "Behold, about this time tomorrow." I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from this day till it was founded until now. And then strike eight, the locust reads in chapter 10, the locust came up over the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as has had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And then essentially the third one in this series is just straight up the land is darkened, right? It's all about the Egyptians not being able to see. So the hail comes, so much hail that we've never seen before, and then the locusts, so much hail, so much locusts that they cover the land, we've never seen this before, and then darkness, we just straight out cannot see, okay? And this set, each time, is actually Moses' hand. It's Moses' turn to do this strike. And so he stretches out his hand over Egypt and essentially brings all these strikes upon them. Okay, so how are we going with our grid now? Can we actually get the grid back up? Okay, awesome. How, it's, pretty, it's pretty beautiful, isn't it, how it's kind of arranged in that way? I mean, it spent, I, I spent actually a couple of hours trying to put this slide together and, um, and we'll actually see as well with Tim's sermon next week that some of the, the strikes on the 10th one is kind of a culmination of all these nine strikes being played out. Now, I just want to point out something briefly to you guys before I get to why the author has arranged these things this way. 
because I wanted to say that we've only just begun peeling back the layers of this onion here, okay? Or if you don't like onions, think cakes, okay? Um, Shrek says that apparently cakes are better to think about layers. Um, there's, there's layers to this onion. There's parts that, like I said, I feel like I can see little things here, but I can't quite find the pairings up, and I haven't found someone else to fully explain it. But also, there's so much here that I can't fully explain it all in 20 to 30 minutes of a sermon either. Do you know you could also map on some of the, the strikes on Egypt to the gods of Egypt? Like they were, they were worshipping the gods of the Nile, they were worshipping gods of frogs and livestock and etc. You can also do that as well. There are other parts here that, 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 that a lot's going on, okay? But the chorus of this symphony, the chorus of this song, right? The melody that's being played throughout, that's what I want to draw your attention to now. Because it's actually right back where we started. Because Pharaoh said, I don't know Yahweh. And then the Lord replies by sending the strikes on Egypt so that he will know him. And throughout the entire story, the author states this line. He says, by this you will know I am Yahweh. Guess how many times he says that? Seven times. Seven times throughout this narrative, he gets that line again, that chorus coming through of the song. Because you see, God is actually entirely concerned with being known by Pharaoh. He wants Pharaoh to know him by seeing the destruction on Egypt. He wants to see the concern for his people. God's entirely concerned with being uncovered by both of his enemies and his people. In fact, this reminds me of that passage that says, Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, which Paul was actually riffing off Isaiah. Because you see, by the tenth strike on Egypt, Pharaoh came to know who God, who the God of Israel was. But so too, through the same strikes on Egypt, did Israel learn about who their God was. And now also, we too, as we read this passage, we can learn about who God was and what he is like. And what we learn is that God is concerned about being known to man. This is kind of like creation. When God created uh, the garden in Eden, he created man to walk with him and to talk with him and to be known by him. Just as Adam and Eve knew each other, he wanted to be known by them as well. And so we see the uncovering of who God is through the Exodus story. And what we actually learn is that God is both a God of mercy End of justice. He's the God of mercy because he's chosen to love and set apart the people of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, not because of they've done anything special, but just because he'd love them. And the God who brings them out of Egypt by his own hand into the land of milk and honey, despite all of their grumbling and despite all their turning away from him and starting to worship golden calves or even wanting to go back into slavery in Egypt. And the God of justice... Well, we get the God of justice because he has meticulously and intricately and carefully planned out these nine strikes or the ten strikes on Egypt so that he would be known by Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh thinks that this is just some pushover minor league God who is just only important to these filthy slaves. But we're actually going to see, we've actually seen that God is the God over gods. He is the God over the Egyptian gods. He is the God over those magicians who can also turn their staves into snakes but then get gobbled up by God's snakes. 
by God's staff, right? Because even Egypt, even uh, Pharaoh's magicians couldn't stand after the third and the sixth strike. They're begging Pharaoh to please give in because this is the finger of God. And so now these strikes throughout the story of Exodus, they show us this God of mercy and the God of justice and how he wants to be known by mankind. In fact, we actually see through the Exodus story that this proclamation about Yahweh comes in. In Exodus 34, it says, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's the mercy part. But then he says, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. There's the justice part. That passage, that passage is first stated in Exodus 34, but it's actually the part of the Bible that is most quoted, right? As in, it's the part of the Bible that is most referred to by other parts of the Bible. And there it is explaining God to be the God of mercy and justice. It fleshes that out. Because God is the, mer- the God of mercy and justice. Mercy for the Israelites who didn't deserve it, but simply because God loved them anyway, they got it. And justice for Pharaoh and Egypt, who did not bow to God, despite many, many attempts to prove to him that he was God. And that's what is being revealed to us through the entire Exodus story. Each new part of the story is revealing to us a little bit more about who God is. Yahweh is drawing out his people from slavery, leading them into the desert to have a relationship with him by knowing who he is. He could have wiped out Egypt quickly, but he didn't. He was careful. In meditating and reflecting on this passage, I can't help considering my own life. I think the question really ought to be of this story is which one will I be? Will I be the one who receives mercy or justice? It's a question we all have to ask, actually, because in what manner will you fall down before the feet of God? Will it be by force or by forgiveness? In fact, when we see that God is concerned with both mercy and justice and we look to the cross, well, there we see a father who laid down the life of his son for those who are actually his enemies. There we see the righteous penalty being laid upon the son instead of upon those who deserve it. And what we see is God wants to remain just while also being a God of, of mercy. We even, see, we even see that on his right and on his left are two criminals being hung there next to Jesus. One criminal says to Jesus, Save yourself and me! Despite wishing to avoid the penalty of his crime, he still can't accept that he's actually guilty of what's being happened to him. He thinks he shouldn't be up there. And if this guy Jesus has the power to get himself down, well, he should know that he should be taken down as well because surely that's the just thing to do. I'm not deserving of these sins, right? This penalty isn't for me. But what does the other criminal say? He recognizes that he is receiving what he deserves. And first he rebukes the first criminal and then he turns to Jesus and he just says, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Which man are you going to be 
Are you going to be the man who asks for mercy? Or are you going to be the man who receives justice? I think that's what we've got to learn from this story for us today. How about we pray? And we're going to finish up with our final song. Lord, we come before you as guilty sinners, who people who have justly deserve punishment for our sin. And Lord, we pray, I pray, as I believe many in the, in the congregation will pray as well, we ask for, just, for, for mercy. We ask for mercy despite knowing that we should receive our just penalty. We ask God because we know you are a merciful God and a just God. And we've seen that before many times in your word. We pray and ask for that mercy and please deal with us better than what we deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.